morning. Happy New Year. My diet starts tomorrow. Thank you for uh, venturing out this morning. None of, if, none of us have missed church so far this year, so yay us. Uh, I'm Mike Mall, a member here at Lakeview Church. I fill in once in a while and do a sermon, so if there are any visitors here, uh, don't judge our church by this sermon. Come back next week and hear a professional. In fact, I preached four weeks ago, and afterwards at home, my wife told me, you sounded nervous at the beginning of your sermon. And I said, I, I didn't feel nervous. I said, my stomach was pretty upset. It was churning. I was hoping everything was going to hold together so I could make it through the sermon, but I, I didn't feel nervous. And then my wife said, to kind of pick on me and give me a hard time like she does once in a while, she said, oh, well, maybe it was because you didn't talk about your clothes at the beginning of the sermon. And she said that because in the prior sermon, I had worn my dancing shoes and talked about them, and I've been known to mention maybe my pants or my shirt. And she said that to me, so of course, the rebellious spirit in me that we all have uh, thought, fine woman, just for that, I'm going to talk, talk about my clothes at the beginning of the next sermon. And I, in my head, I had a shirt all picked out that I was going to wear. I've had it for 20 years. I was going to talk about it. But I got out of bed yesterday morning. I had a terrible headache. I felt terrible. It was nasty outside. And it just felt like a flannel shirt and jeans kind of weekend. So that's what I decided to wear. This is normally what I wear to work, uh, except with work boots. So this is my first sermon in jeans. And so... Uh, yeah, new, new experience for me. So that's my, that's my clothing update for the first Sunday of 2022. Now we can uh, turn to the sermon. We're starting a three-week series today on Messianic Psalms. The series is called Psalms of Jesus. So Messianic Psalms are psalms that point towards Jesus and have their ultimate fulfillment in him. There are about 16 Messianic Psalms. Today we're going to discuss Psalm Two, so you can turn there if you would like. And I've got a few points, uh, just general points about the book of Psalms that I want to make kind of before we get started with the text. The first one is that in Hebrew, the name of the book is called Tehillim, which means praises because most of the uh, Psalms are praises. Most of them are. Uh, my next point here is that uh, we get the word psalm. It's really a Greek word, psalmos, which means songs sung to a harp or to a stringed instrument. And that's the, uh, how they translated, how the Greeks translated the Hebrew word mizmor. So uh, at the beginning of Psalm 3, for instance, it says a psalm of David. The Hebrew behind that is mizmor. The Greeks translate that as uh, psalmos, which means song. We just take the Greek word into English and make a new English word. So now a psalm in English means a song or a poem used in worship. And then on the next slide, I have a few more points. If we talk about the collection of psalms, the book uh, is plural, psalms. An individual psalm is singular, so I would say psalm 2. And the book of psalms is divided into songs, not chapters, technically. So... I would not say open your Bible to Psalms chapter 145. I would just say open your Bible to Psalm 145. Makes sense. My last little uh, point here is a Psalter 
is a volume, a book that contains the book of Psalms and then often contains maybe some devotional material or some liturgy or some responsive readings, but that's what a Psalter is. And they have their beginning uh, back when books first came out and books were expensive, uh, you could buy a Psalter cheaper than you could buy a Bible, but it had all of the Psalms in it. So now I'm going to read through the text from Psalm chapter 2. We're going to back up and kind of go through it, and then at the end I've got a couple stories to share. So Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we think this was a a coronation psalm, something that would have been sung when a new king was coronated in Israel, and that makes sense when we look at some of the language in it. We can also see some verses in here that point to Jesus and have their fulfillment in him. So now I'm going to back up and kind of, we're just going to work our way uh, through the psalm, starting with the first three verses again. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The, The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now, in Old Testament prophecy, we know a lot of times there's a near fulfillment and maybe one or two future fulfillments of that prophecy, kind of multiple facets to a lot of things. So we look at this and think about, well, was this true when it was written? Were the nations uh, conspiring against the Lord? And uh, we need to look at other places in the Bible to get information on that. So there's another psalm, Psalm 85, sorry, Psalm 83 says this, With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation so that Israel's name is remembered no more. With one mind they plot together. They form an alliance against you. So here in Psalm 83, which would have been written roughly 1,000 B.C. with the other psalms, uh, we have nations conspiring against Israel. And of course, that psalm itself would also be prophetic, pointing to the future. So there's kind of a, a, a near fulfillment there. Or that's kind of the status quo at the time that that first few verses in Psalm 2 were written. So what about Jesus' first coming? Is there any fulfillment there uh, of these first few verses? And to look at that, we turn to Acts chapter 4. Now, as a little refresher, in Acts chapter 4, the day of Pentecost has already happened. Peter and John uh, are in the temple one day. They see a man that was born lame. He's in his 40s, and they heal him. 
Now, the religious leaders don't like that, so they call Peter and John and tell them, you can't preach about Jesus. We don't want any preaching about Jesus. And, then, and Peter and John say, well, we have to obey God. We can't obey you. And then they go back to their fellow believers, the young church, and they tell them what happened. And then we have this in Acts 4. It says, when they, the other believers, heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then here they quote Psalm 2, the verses we just read. They say, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And then they continue in prayer. It says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So there, we're told that when Pontius Pilate and Herod and the religious leaders conspired against Jesus, against the God, God's anointed, to have him killed, that was a fulfillment of these verses. And they quote Psalm 2. That's a fulfillment of it. But they also recognize that God is in control, that God is working this all together, that it all is happening according to God's plan. They acknowledge that, and I think that's important. So those verses in Psalm 2, the world conspiring against God, have a fulfillment in Jesus' first coming. And I think there's also a fulfillment of those verses in a sense in that here the Jewish leaders are trying to squelch the gospel. Right? They're conspiring against God and against his anointed. They're trying to squash the gospel. I think there's a fulfillment there. What about now? How does the world view God? Well, the world still conspires against him, right? And against Jesus and against Israel. I have a slide here. This is uh, from May of 2021. It says, Turkey calls for Muslims nations to unite, and it's really to unite against Israel. That's a shot of some violence in Gaza. So that's from May of this year. Uh, a month ago today, this next article came out. It says, UN condemns Israel in three resolutions, erases Jewish connection to Judaism's holiest site. In these resolutions that came out in December, uh, they referred to the Temple Mount, uh, not as the Temple Mount, but they referred to it uh, using the Muslim name of the mosque that's there. So that's they're, they're kind of separating that site uh, from its Jewish history and uh, from Judaism. So the, kind of the point of this article is, in, in December of this year, there were 19 or 20 UN General Assembly resolutions against different nations for human, right, human rights violations. 14 of those 19 or 20 were against Israel. So, which doesn't seem to make any sense, given everything going on in Myanmar, China, all these other nations, that 70% of the UN's attention would be focused on Israel. I think Satan's behind that. I think it's just more fulfillment of these verses in Psalms. What about Jesus' second coming? Well, there we look to Revelation, see what that has to say. So I have this from Revelation chapter 16, verses 14 and 16. It says, they are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. 
Skip a verse. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So we know that in the future, the, the kings of the nations of the world are going to come together against Israel. Their attitude is going to be, once and for all, we're finally going to get rid of Israel. Satan wants to do that because if he can get rid of Israel, he can still thwart God's plan. Because Israel is still part of God's plan. So that's what Satan wants to do. And in Zechariah chapter 14, it tells us that it's actually God that is bringing the nations together against Israel. He's gathering them together. And then a couple verses later, it tells us that Jesus is going to come back, set his feet on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to do battle against these nations that he's gathered. What does it look like when Jesus does battle? I don't know. I'm probably going to be there to see it. Maybe I'm part of the army, but I know he wins, right? It's not going to be pretty for those opposing God. So this, these first few verses in Psalm 2 have their fulfillment at the end of the age, their ultimate fulfillment. So now I want to keep going in Psalm 2 with verse 4. It says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. God's not worried. He's working out his plan. He sits in heaven and figuratively laughs at the plans of men. He's not worried about it at all. And then he says, I have installed my king on Zion. Zion is uh, where Jerusalem is, Mount Zion, my holy mountain. So that would obviously have applications maybe as Solomon is coronated as king, that God has established his uh, king on Mount Zion. I think it, it's fulfilled in a sense at Jesus' first coming. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he had completed everything G or God, had done, had, God had told him to do, right? He had completed his work, so he went up to be with the Father. He sat down at his right hand. He was kind of done. I think there's a sense that that verse is fulfilled there. And obviously... It's fulfilled in the future when Jesus comes back to reign in the millennial temple at Jerusalem. That's where that will have its ultimate fulfillment. Continuing on, Psalm 2, verse 7. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them like pieces of pottery. You are my son. Today I have become your father. David is writing this. He would have heard those words before from God himself as part of the Davidic covenant, promises that God made to David about the future. Those are recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want to read a few of those verses. Starting with verse 12, it says, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, so this is God talking to David, saying, When you die, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. So the, David repeats those words in Psalm 2 under the influence of the Holy Spirit talking about this father and son idea. When we look at the Davidic covenant, 
that's like much of the Old Testament where we're talking about a man or a king, but all of a sudden we're not. All of a sudden we're talking about something that can't be just a man or a king, and we're talking about Satan, or we're talking about Jesus. And it's hard to tell where it changes sometimes and what is what, but there's points where, hey, this isn't just a man we're talking about. And we kind of see that in this Second Samuel passage. You know, he is the one who will build the house for my name. Well, who is that? That's Solomon, right? Solomon was going to build the temple. But I think more fully, it's Jesus that's building a spiritual house for the Father. And even now, Jesus is what? He's preparing a place for us, right? And uh, when you talk about establishing the throne of his kingdom forever, I really think about that being Jesus. And again, with the uh, father and son analogy. Now, Jesus is as old as the father. He's not any younger than the father. They're one being eternally existent. We talk about Jesus being the son. It's a metaphor to help us understand the relationship. They're one being, they're equal, but the Son is submissive to the Father. There's a hierarchy there, and that metaphor helps us to understand that, what God's family is like, what the Trinity is like. So that's language. Now I want to share this passage from Acts 13. This is Paul giving a sermon. He says, We tell you the good news. What God has promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us their children. By raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. So because of this verse, we know that when Jesus was resurrected, somehow that too was a fulfillment of these verses, of Jesus becoming God's son, the father becoming his father. Now, Nothing new happened that day, right? At Jesus' baptism, God said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But somehow, that again was a fulfillment of these verses. I think when Jesus was resurrected, God was putting his stamp on him, saying, Yes, he is my Son, just like he said. He is God. He's back from the dead. So in a sense, God again becomes Jesus' Father. And again, it's a fulfillment of these verses in Psalm 2. Now I want to look at one more verse from Revelation talking about the future and this this father-son idea. This is from Revelation chapter 21. It says, He said to me, so this is God, the Lord, talking to John. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spirit of of the water of life. A lot of prepositions in that sentence. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So, Jesus is the ultimate overcomer. He's the ultimate man that did God's will. We all become sons and daughters of God when we come to faith, right? But I think as our faith perseveres, as we overcome, as we enter the end of the age, uh, we're going to be more fully his sons and daughters as those events unfold. I think that's going to be true in a fuller sense as we meet Jesus face to face. Now, I want to share one more New Testament reference to Psalm chapter 2 just to make you aware of it, and it's a well-known reference. So, in Psalm 2, verse 9, we have this. 
you will break them with a rod of iron. I have it in bold here. Some translations would say that as you will rule them with an iron scepter. That's quoted in Revelation chapter 19. I want to read this. This is a well-known passage talking about Jesus. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So when Jesus comes back in judgment to do battle, that's the ultimate fulfillment of him ruling with an iron scepter. So I wanted to point that out. This idea of ruling with an iron scepter, that's the translation of the Greek. Uh, The NIV translates the Hebrew a little bit differently. It would be nice if they would use the same language in both places, but they don't. But that's the fulfillment of that. We'll all be there to get to see that. So that brings us to the last three verses in Psalm 2. It says, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So God's warning the kings, be warned, this is what's going to happen. Be wise. I'm going to come back in judgment. I'm warning you ahead of time. And I like Psalm 211. I have a picture here. That is a synagogue in Romania, and over the front door, in Hebrew, obviously, is written Psalm 211. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. We're called to serve and celebrate with fear and trembling. That's a hard concept for us to get as children of God, loved by the Father, completely forgiven, not condemned at all. We're supposed to fear God. I listened to a podcast a couple days ago on wisdom, and the podcast said part of wisdom is knowing what to fear. There are a lot of believers that know Jesus that fear death. They shouldn't fear death. There are a lot of unbelievers that don't believe in Jesus that don't fear death. They should fear death. And if they fear death, maybe they would look around for a solution to that fear. So part of wisdom is knowing what to fear. And, and fearing God is hard for us to understand sometimes. And sometimes we think we get our hands around it and it makes sense. And then we think about it again and we lose it. It's like, I'm supposed to fear God, have a very healthy respect for his holiness and his power. How does that work out in my life? But we're called to fear him. And then, the, and then in that last verse, kiss his son or he will be angry. Uh, believe on Jesus. And we're blessed if we take refuge in him. So I, I summarize Psalm 2 this way. Nations and people continue to be against God and Jesus. God is not worried. He's working out his plan. Jesus will be installed as king. We can count on that. God calls us to serve him and to take refuge in Jesus. I think we could back up one more level. And I would summarize it this way. 
God is working out his plan. Serve and trust him. That's kind of what the Bible calls us to do. God has a plan. He knows the end from the beginning. He tells us what it is. We're supposed to trust in Jesus and trust in God. The problem is, it's not in our nature to do that, right? Our nature is to not trust God and to rebel against him. So way back in the garden, when God says, don't eat from that tree, we think what? God doesn't have our best interest in mind. We know better than God. I'm going to eat from the tree, then I'll be better off. Of course, we've been living with those consequences ever since. And even as believers, depending on what our circumstances are on any given day, we can doubt God's goodness in our life, and we can doubt God and his character. Now, I want to tell you two stories. The first one is a story I don't know if I've shared or not, but there's a contractor in Madison that my company, Mall Construction, works with a lot. We've been working, doing work for them since 2007. And this guy calls me a lot just to talk. And so I've dropped hints along the way that I'm a Christian. So, or maybe more than hints, I say I have to preach this weekend or I'm on a search committee looking for a new pastor. So he knows I have faith. And we did dinner about three years ago for the first time. And he asked me about my faith. And so I explained the gospel I explained that you get to heaven by being forgiven. And then he asked me, what percentage of the people do you think are going to heaven? I said, well, 25% or maybe 30% of the world would claim the name of Christ, claim to be a Christian. I said, of those, I said, I don't know how many are born again. I don't know how many are really trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and not trusting their own goodness. I don't know. I said, maybe it's half of that, maybe it's less than that, I'm not sure. So he does the math in his head, and he tells me this. He says, I don't want to believe in a God who would create all of this and only take that many people to heaven with him. And then he said to me, he said, either way, you got it covered. And what he meant was, if you get to heaven by being good, he sees me as a good person because he doesn't know me very well, he he says, you've got it covered if you get to heaven by being good. And, it, and if you get to heaven by believing in Jesus, you've got it covered because you believe in Jesus. And I said, you're right. I said, I do have it covered, but not because I'm good. I said, nobody's good enough. I believe in Jesus. So I've thought about that conversation ever since then. And I thought, really, in my heart, what my acquaintance is saying is God doesn't measure up to his standards. He doesn't want to believe in a God that fill in the blank. God doesn't meet his standards. Of course, what's the message of the Bible? None of us meet God's standards, right? So if my acquaintance doesn't come to faith in Jesus and he meets God and he tells God, you don't meet my standards, and God tells him, you don't meet my standards, who wins that? God wins that every time, right? So I've thought about that. And I've thought, really, if you boil that down a little bit more, what my acquaintance, I don't want to call him friend because he's not really a friend, but my acquaintance, what he's really saying is we'd be better off if he was God. He would make better decisions than God is, right? Which means he must either think he's smarter than God or he's nicer than God, one or the other. That's kind of what it boils down to based on pride if he's honest. Okay, that's one story. Now I've got another story. 
This is a baseball bat that I bought about 1974 in Waniwak, Wisconsin, when I went to stay with my grandpa for a week. Walked down to Main Street and bought this. It was $4 even, plus 4% state sales tax. That's what the sales tax was, and I still remember that. This would have been a major purchase for me as an 8 or 9-year-old. I now sleep with this under my bed. I don't have a gun at home, so if anybody breaks in at night, it's me, Jesus, and this baseball bat. So I like introducing people to Jesus. Hopefully I never have to do it with a baseball bat, but you never know. So anyway, I bring this in here today to relate another story. I played baseball through eighth grade. On a good day, I was average, and I'm not sure how many good days I had, but I enjoyed the game. Our team wasn't very good. We weren't very good at hitting the ball. And after one particularly poor outing, the father of one of the kids on our team asked our coach, hey, can I come to the next practice and teach, teach these kids how to hit? And the coach said, sure. So he shows up at practice. He, he shows us how to stand in the batter's box, how to hold the bat, where the bat and our arms and hands should be when we make contact with the ball teaches us the fundamentals, then we do batting practice. Every kid gets a chance to hit the ball. And then, at the end of the practice, this father is standing near the pitcher's mound with his ball and glove, and he tells us all to grab a baseball bat. So 14 or 15 of us junior high boys, we all grab a baseball bat, and we stand in kind of an arc around home plate facing the pitcher's mound. And he says, I'm going to say... I pitch the ball, and you're going to say, I hit the ball. So we're junior high boys, and we think this is kind of silly, you know, hope nobody's watching. So the father says, I pitch the ball. And then we all stand there with our bat, and we say, I hit the ball. Then he says, I pitch the ball. I hit the ball. And this went on for a long time. I pitch the ball. I hit the ball. He starts raising his voice. So we start raising our voice to match him. And so by the end of it, he's not screaming, but he's, he's speaking very authoritatively and very loud. I pitch the ball, and we're kids are kind of yelling, I hit the ball. And we all kind of work up this frenzy, and that was the end of practice. And 40 years later, I still remember that, because at the next game, two days later, it was like it was a new team. Kids that hadn't gotten a base hit all year got multiple base hits. We scored 20-some runs. It was just crazy. And we were better for the rest of the season. And I remember he taught us the fundamentals, but the key was he taught us we were there to hit the ball. And somehow something changed, and we became a team that knew how to hit the ball. So I always remember that. So I'm going to combine the first story I told you about my friend that thinks he's nicer or smarter than God with the story about my baseball coach. So, as we head into 2022, whatever situation you're in, or whatever situation arises, and sometimes life itself feels like a situation, right? It just feels like something we have to get through, something we have to endure, not necessarily enjoy. I want you to remember that you can trust God, that he's working out his plan, that he's smarter than you are, that he's nicer than you are, and that he's good. And I tell that my, to myself, I don't really doubt God very often, but I take comfort in knowing that God is smarter than me, 
God's nicer than me. He's good, and I can trust his plan. I don't have to, I don't have to question him. So I want all of you to stand up, and the worship team can come up. I'm going to say God is smarter than I am, and you're going to repeat that. Then I'll say God is nicer than I am, because he is. Then I'll say God is good, and you can repeat that. And we'll go through that a few times, and you can remember this as we head into 2022 and whatever God has for you. So, God is smarter than I am. God is nicer than I am. God is good. God is smarter than I am. God is nicer than I am. God is good. God is smarter than I am. God is nicer than I am. God is good. Now look to your neighbor and say, God is smarter than I am. God is nicer than I am. God is good. Now you can sit down. I want you to remember that because we can all doubt God's goodness. We can all doubt how nice he is, for lack of a better word. And it's best for us if we don't doubt that. I'm going to close in prayer, and then the worship team's going to sing. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are working out your plan, that we can trust you completely. Thank you for being a good, good God. Amen.